Alright, I've got another piece that I want to play with a bit of music. This is from the Dark Horse podcast. And it's just a, a conversation they had about about people potentially waking up about the types of conversations that people are having now as opposed to last year, the difference. So it's about 15 minutes. I'm trying it with a different piece of music over the top of it to see how well it works. So here we go. This is uh, Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying from Dark Horse Podcast 107. Thank 
you may think, well, what's, what's causing this? Maybe nothing is. It can be random, but sometimes it isn't. But anyway, the point is that mine is, under normal circumstances, very good at getting a sense for whether something is up. And whether something is up, you know, socially speaking, when you actually have contact with, you know, a billion people via some social media platform, that thing would trigger you to recognize that, hey, we're not all on board with the same narrative, except that the platforms are throwing people off who disagree. Those people who are still on who disagree are demonized, they're portrayed as if they've lost the plot, etc. All of these processes. And what it does is it games the mind so that the mind becomes very comfortable with things. And so this leaves you, you and I know, for example, from our larger than common social circle, we have a lot of people in contact with us. A large fraction of those people have very serious private doubts, many of which have not been publicly acknowledged. Many serious what? Uh, serious private what? Doubts. Doubts. Okay. I said doubts. Oh, I don't know anything. People <laughs> <laughs> like to talk about it. Sure, sure, sure. Asked, but, many, um, many people with whom we are in contact have um, doubts that they are keeping to themselves, but they will share it with us, for instance. Right, and many of them, frankly... Doubts about the public messaging, about the um, safe and effective messaging, and about all the rest. Right, they have doubts about these things that have, in many cases, some cases have not governed their behavior, and in some cases have governed their behavior, and they're now wondering what to do in a world of mandates that they may not qualify uh, to, um, to get the check mark from. And in any case, we get a very bad idea of how common this, these doubts are and the arms race to keep us in the dark about how common our perspective is, is ratcheting up rather precipitously. We, of course, are stuck in a predicament with something like Australia, where, yes, it's true, we're not in Australia, we're not in a position to know directly. On the other hand, you and I know two people who have fled Australia uh, because they believe that there is a very powerful force that will not be transient that is engaging in authoritarianism of an egregious kind. Furthermore, um, we do live in Portland, and we have lived in Portland for a little over three years at this point. So we were here during the summer of 2020 into the fall of 2020, and in some cases saw directly um, some of you know, the, the protests that regularly turned into riots every night for something like a hundred, more than 100 consecutive nights, and the damage to downtown, and the enduring damage, and the just wasteland that so much of, frankly, a lot of East Portland has become. And, and yet, it's not everywhere. Even then, even at the worst time of it, it wasn't everywhere and it wasn't all the time. It was actually fairly predictable when and where it was. And Portland is tiny compared to Australia. And so people could plausibly, granted I don't think they were actually doing honest journalism, but people could plausibly come into Portland during the height of the reliably nightly riots and stand in the middle of a beautiful square on, in the middle of the day and say, I don't see any Antifa here, therefore it's not real. And that story was bought, right? So if that can happen in Portland, which is frankly very small, and anyone who was interested could have asked almost any resident of Portland, where would I go to see these alleged, you know, these alleged riots? And they would have been pointed to the right place and they would have seen it. Uh, 
in Australia, it's you know it's far bigger. It's still looser. You know, there are there are a couple of these of these places where people are now um, being funneled. But um, by and large, the argument that you're not here, you don't know what's going on, is is a it's a faint. You know, F-E-I-N-T. It's it's a faint because there are a lot of people who live in Australia who won't be directly seeing what is happening in other parts of Australia. Well, there's that, and there's also the problem that the incentives surrounding acknowledging what is taking place mean that if anybody who is in Australia can hold rank on anybody who isn't in Australia, then what you get is an effective veto over a, yes, imprecise, but nonetheless accurate perception. Something has gone wrong in Australia, which is now engaged in behavior that is not, you know, we, we have internment camps, okay? We have internment camps in which you cannot leave for a period of time, but then you go home. It's not exact. It's not Manzanar, but it is something, and you know we have a right to think about it. And it's an, it's another form of stay in your laneism, which you know we have we have previously argued against all forms of stay in your laneism uh, because the lane that may be actually legitimately described by an historical discipline that really did constrain certain kinds of inquiry that involved certain kinds of methods that if you weren't familiar with you might not know how to assess claims of truth in that discipline, right? That said, the standard way to acquire that knowledge, which would allow you to assess claims within that discipline, because they are corruptible, they have become corrupt, and therefore requiring that you have followed the standard way to acquire knowledge um, is a way to, to accelerate the corruption. And that is true even in places where there might actually have been a lane, historically, that was legitimate, but, you know, geographical standards Lanism. I live on, you know, basically I live in this, this quadrant of the planet. It's not quite a quadrant, but, you know, I live on this continent, and therefore I know what's going on here, and you don't? Well, that's patent bullshit. Yeah, it's not as yeah. like uh, Sarah Palin uh, having lots of foreign policy experience by virtue of, you know, Russia being just over the street. That, you, and that, um, was, that was easy for, you know, half the country, including us, time to laugh at, like, oh, for God's sake, you know, but... Now, now it's roughly the same half of the country just buying these kinds of absurd arguments. Right. Well, in a sense, I mean, you and I have bristled at uh, stay in your lane since the first time we heard it. Because, of course, it is a territorial argument, and uh, it, is, it is used to silence that which is uh, inconvenient, etc. Um, but the argument you just make makes me that effectively lane, as it's being used in this case, are a kind of blinders. And the idea is you are to blind yourself to that which is outside of your lane. And so my sense is yeah. that we actually have, um, this thing we talked about a number of streams ago, we talked about the, uh, the obligation to disagree. Oh, yes. Uh, which, um, gosh, I'm going to mispronounce his name again. Richard Rearson, I think, on his, on his podcast revealed that um, he's a, he's a, was a former Marine and I believe a, um, a, a commercial pilot who said that in aviation there is a obligation. I don't have the, the framing right. I can't remember exactly the phrase. But an obligation to disagree. To challenge. Obligation to challenge. Not, not uh, a tolerance for challenge, but an obligation an to obligation challenge. obligation to challenge. Yes. So I think um, basically my feeling is um, not only should we reject the state 
Herlanism that we should found. Stay out of Herlanism. Right? <laughs> that you have an obligation to get out of Herlanism and see what is adjacent because, frankly, or, you're I, living I, I, in a... I wouldn't say stay out of Herlanism. I'd say get out of Herlanism. So, you know, you, you, you also get to live in whatever domain you, you feel that you legitimately have expertise in. You don't want to, you don't want to throw out... Yeah, get out of Herlanism better. Yeah. You're right. Stay out of Herlanism. Linguistically more fun, but get out of Herlanism, right? Um, but anyway, I mean, at some level, look, this is... I don't know, I'm having a sense that something is going on this week, and it may be that it's just crossed the threshold for me this week. I mean, it's not really this week. Okay, there you go. That's a uh, tip from the Dark Horse podcast. And, uh, yeah, I think they, they summarize it. Again, it's an archetype. People waking up out of sleep or out of hypnosis is an archetype. It's, uh, it's Plato's cave, or it's... it's um, any fairy tale with a sleeping princess, ultimately. Somebody has to wake them up, or a, a situation has to happen, or a period of time has to pass, or whatever. But it's the same archetype. It's people slowly seeing things they didn't, they couldn't otherwise see. Anyway, so that's that's my archetype argument. Pretty much, it's uh, it's Plato's cave. Is uh, is what we're talking about. So whoever sees the sun, who turns around away from the shadows and sees the sun, is going to come back and look like an idiot, look like they're a lunatic because they're talking about something that nobody else can see. But somebody, somebody has to turn away from the shadows and then come back and integrate, integrate the shadows, understand the shadows, understand what's happening with the shadows. Anyway, that's enough for me for now. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again a bit later.